But my central message is if you're so deterrence centric and so arms control phobic, you risk something really bad happening. It is the week of October 25, and welcome to episode 103 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm David Lasseter, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction, founder of Horizons Global Solutions, and NSI Visiting Fellow your guest host this week. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive on the history and future of nuclear arms control with Michael Crapon, co-founder and senior fellow at the Stimson Center and author of Winning and Losing the Nuclear Peace, The Rise, Demise, and Revival of Arms Control. Mike, let's jump right in. I uh, had some questions uh, that I think uh, our viewers and our listeners will uh, will enjoy if, you, uh, if you'll indulge me for a little bit. Happy to. So winning and losing the nuclear peace, the rise, demise, and revival of arms control is the first of its kind, a comprehensive guide to the history, good and bad, of nuclear arms. What is the big message you want readers to take away from your book? David, I I really have two central messages. One is cautionary and one is hopeful. And we sure could use some hope nowadays. The cautionary message is that the history that I write about strongly suggests that deterrence is indispensable as long as these weapons exist. But deterrence standing alone can be extremely dangerous. And it's supposed to be dangerous because if deterrence isn't dangerous, it doesn't deter. And so when we take steps to strengthen deterrence, when Russia does, when China does, when India does, when Pakistan does, or or North Korea, somebody else doesn't feel very good about it. Strengthening deterrence doesn't provide much comfort, um, as necessary as it may be. And typically, others react to steps of strengthening, strengthening measures by taking measures of their own. And folks generally don't feel safer as a result. So as deterrence may be necessary, it's not sufficient. Deterrence needs reassurance to succeed in preventing the battlefield use of nuclear weapons. Reassurance is actually as critical as deterrence, that while states have these extremely dangerous weapons, they would rather not use them. And we need lines of communication. We need guardrails. We need codes of conduct. We need limitations uh, to provide that kind of reassurance alongside deterrence. And we call these varied methods of reassurance arms control. Some measures, like some deterrence measures, measures, work better than others. Some don't work very well at all. And we got to figure that out. But my central message is if you're so deterrence centric and so arms control phobic, you risk something really bad happening. And it's hard, but you got to figure out a way to do both. The hopeful message, David, is that we can figure this out. In fact, we have figured this out. We figured it out during the Cold War. And when the Cold War ended, we had the building blocks in place for lasting nuclear peace. And I can go over those building blocks, but they were in place. And then we cast them aside. The Russians cast them aside. Um, We don't have nuclear peace anymore. 
We don't have the conditions. We got some of them, but nuclear dangers are clearly on the rise with China, whole new Balgi, Russia. There are border wars being fought. India, China, Pakistan, India, Taiwan Strait. That's a real flashpoint. South China Sea. We, we have a whole range of nuclear dangers, but I would like readers to remember that we have succeeded in the past, and I think we can succeed again. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a multi-generational effort, just like the first time, but we can do this. Thank you for that, Michael. I'm picking up on you know the deterrence um, you know, and, and arms control uh, comparisons or dichotomy. I'm, you mentioned some of the act, other actors, other nation states out there, you know, separate and distinct uh, at times from from the Russian Federation. What do you think, what do you find their view is with respect to nuclear weapons as a deterrent? People believe deeply in nuclear deterrence and the Russians do. The Chinese have been kind of blasé about it, but that's in the rear view mirror. The Indians, the Pakistanis believe in nuclear deterrence deeply. And the North Koreans do too. They don't have much else going for them. So we have to work around that belief system. And as before, we got to clarify to states that there are terrible consequences. If they decide to go there, we'll go there too. And it won't work out well for them. It probably won't work out well for us either, if we're talking about Russia or China. But we all have these weapons with pointy front ends. And there are new weapons that aren't so visible, that are also crucial. And you know about them better than most. Uh, there are weapons to mess up space that don't blow things up. There are cyber weapons that by definition, uh, one expects, do not blow things up, although I suppose they could. So we need to work out concepts of deterrence for space and cyber, just as I think we did once on nuclear with the Soviet Union. It took a long time. And there were many missteps, many disappointments, but we figured it out. The point here for me is that even with peer competitors, especially with peer competitors, we need guardrails. We're going to need to work out rules of the road. And deterrence by itself, that's not the business of guardrails. <laughs> it's, it's the business of threatening to leap over guardrails. So we got to get smart on this. And we got to relearn some lessons from the past. I want to pick up on your last point. And you know, looking forward, especially uh, with the steady increase in potential nuclear threats from China, Russia, North Korea, how can the U.S. and the global community you know, ensure that we avoid nuclear war. And you know, should and will our global allies become involved? Um, and do you think, you know, and this gets back to your your, your point that um, you just referenced, but should or do you think, pardon me, that bilateral or multilateral efforts uh, have proven uh, most fruitful? Well, we know that we've succeeded in the past, both bilaterally and multilaterally. Um, so we've done a lot of business with the Soviet Union bilaterally treaty-wise, and with the newly created Russian Federation. But we've also succeeded with the help of allies in multilateral forums. You know, we tend to forget it because we're so focused on major power competition. But the great breakthrough, one of them, in 
arms control was when the Soviet Union agreed to intrusive inspections, on-site inspections. And we needed them because uh, the Soviet Union wasn't always fastidious about its compliance. So we needed to have on-site inspections. And we got them in a security forum where our friends and allies were all at the table. This was uh, the Stockholm process, the confidence and security building measures in Europe. It just took forever. But there was a major breakthrough with Gorbachev in this multilateral forum. And our friends and allies were crucial. Our friends and allies are crucial for the nonproliferation treaty regime. Um, you know, when this treaty was signed way back in 68 in the Johnson administration. There were only 62 parties to this treaty initially, way back when. Now there are over 190. And we didn't get there without the help of our friends and allies. Now, this right. treaty regime, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, it's not perfect. Regrettably, deterrence isn't perfect either. We've had breakdowns in deterrence, including two border wars so far between nuclear armed states. So nothing is perfect. Arms control isn't perfect. The non-proliferation treaty isn't perfect. But without norms, there are no norm breakers. And this non-proliferation treaty regime has been a great success story. There's been one dropout, which we have to worry about a ton, North Korea. And there's one supremely difficult test case right now with Iran. But if you look at the globe and you look at how many states could have nuclear weapons, and I believe more will if Iran succeeds in getting the bomb. Uh, this non-proliferation treaty, which is an, a joint enterprise between those who have the bomb and those who do not, who have sworn abstention, this is a wonderful accomplishment. So we have to learn from previous successes as well as failures. And we're going to have to proceed bilaterally as well as multilaterally. Uh, and I regret to say we're going to have to proceed trilaterally because of the speed with which China is building up its nuclear forces. You mentioned, you know, there will be some bilateral, there'll be, there'll be some multilateral. As it relates to Iran um, and North Korea, um, What's your view as, as the best course uh, for, uh, you know, for us and for the world with, with respect to those two countries? North Korea has the bomb. Um, it has the means to use the bomb regionally and perhaps at longer distances. Not clear to me yet uh, whether they have mastered all the dark arts of throwing a warhead halfway around the world. But they certainly can do it locally and regionally. And they have other weapons as well that can be just ruinous for our essential friend and ally in South Korea and Japan as well. So because North Korea has the bomb, we have to rely pretty heavily on deterrence. I strongly believe we have to rely as well on theater missile defense programs that show a greater prospect of successful intercepts than national missile defense intercepts do. We're still having a hard time there, but we are making progress with theater ballistic missile intercepts, and they convey all the right messages to friends and allies in very troubled regions. And when North Korea is ready. I think we also, with the help of our friends and allies in the region, ought to pursue arms control programs with them. Now, we can't want it more than they do, the North Koreans do. Uh, and they have to know that. 
And right now they're acting in ways in which they think we want it more than they do, which is a terrible misconception. It's not going to happen. But we have to be ready. We have to do our homework. What kinds of arms control is possible? How can we point in the direction of denuclearization, which is the end state we want on the Korean Peninsula? Uh, But they're not ready yet. Iran is a different situation, David, and you know it well, because Iran doesn't yet have the means to make nuclear weapons, although it's knocking on the door. And I actually, we may differ on this, but I supported the uh, Iran nuclear agreement that the Obama administration, Russia, China, and our European allies negotiated, which had 15 years plus worth of intrusive monitoring of its provisions. Usually countries that are dead set to get the bomb have the means to do so, like North Korea. They don't wait for 15 years. Um, so I thought that was a useful agreement. We had to watch it very, very carefully to see that Iran was in compliance. But Iran was in compliance when we walked away from it. And now we're in a very different situation. And whatever the previous Iranian regime felt about nuclear weapons, this regime seems to be different. And I agree with every American president, Biden, Trump, Obama, and farther back, who said that it is U.S. policy that Iran not succeed in getting the bomb or the means to make nuclear weapons. So I don't believe that we have a third option, which is to sit back and watch. I think that leaves us with two other options. One is diplomatic success. Like that, in my view, that the Obama administration and Russia, China, and Europe negotiated. But those terms have been vitiated. And if diplomatic success is not possible, if we can't have confidence in diplomatic success, then there's only one other option left. And it's a risky option. It's airstrikes by somebody. But as risky as this option is, I've reluctantly reached the conclusion that it's less risky than if Iran acquires nuclear weapons. Do you think at this point, and staying on on Iran, do you think at this point uh, a discussion um, or diplomatic discussion with them are better in a uh, multilateral scenario as opposed to uh, you know, the, the Biden administration uh, going alone. I'm not saying that they are, but if they were to go alone at the regime to uh, try to get some uh, satisfaction. David, the way I'm reading this, and I could be wrong, but um, the Biden administration is, in effect, standing on the periphery and and having Russia, China, and the Europeans convey its messages. Now, there may be secret channels of communication that I don't know about, where we're very much um, in direct contact. Uh, my view is that it has to be a multilateral approach, just like before. Um, Russia and China have to be on board. Um, the Europeans want to be on. Uh, but I also believe there has to be a direct contact. And this message of these are the choices, and they're pretty stark right now. I don't see how we convey them sato voce, you know. Um, I, I think they have to be clear and direct. So I hope there are private channels of communication, but I don't know. Well, you know, let's move on. You had mentioned you'd mentioned China earlier, so I'd love to hear a little more um, about your thinking. You know, really, I guess, and let me, let me start off with a general question. In your, in your view, 
Uh, is China as much of a nuclear threat as Russia? Oh, I don't think so. Not in the least. And I say that advisedly. Well, why or why not? Yeah, I say it advisedly because they are building up. But first, Russia has many more of these weapons than China does. And China remains far behind, although it is building up. Russia has had a keen interest in tactical nuclear weapons, and they have their own intrinsic dangers. I don't, I don't see China as having a whole lot of interest in tactical nuclear weapons. I think they're pretty smart about land warfare, um, probably smarter than the Russians are, because I hold the heretical view that tactical nuclear weapons are more of a threat to the holder than to the adversary. The tactical nuclear weapons, you were a Marine once. Tactical nuclear weapons don't help Always. you season. <laughs> They don't help you seize and hold ground. So, I mean, the Russians are into tactical nuclear weapons. Um, it's way more dangerous than the Chinese approach. The strategic cultures of Russia and China are quite different, and it's worth dwelling on them. The strategic culture that China is coming from is one of no first use. Now they're fuzzing it up, but you don't embrace an entirely different strategic culture. You adapt it. And the Russian strategic culture places tremendous um, value on nuclear weapons. And they did even when they had conventional force advantages in Europe. They still did. I think China is a lot smarter than Russia with respect to its strategic thinking. China is into denial strategies. That's bedrock. And you don't deny by using nuclear weapons, David. You lose by using nuclear weapons. I think they get that. Now, China is moving in addition to denial. They're overlaying denial with warfighting capabilities for within their neighborhood. But there is nothing so far that I see in Chinese strategic culture that leads me to conclude that they have been utterly infected with Western and Russian slash Soviet concepts of warfighting involving nuclear weapons. Um, we project onto them, David. Um, we project our thinking onto them. And we got to be real careful about that. That's a very important point. You know, I, I, you know, the outsider, the, you know, the, 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 the man or woman on the street would say, well, I see, I see a couple of countries with thousands of warheads. I see, I see one, one great power with, uh, you know, with, with significantly less. Um, at what, at, at what level do you think they view that as a, as, as a factor or as, as maybe the preeminent factor? Well, when we get to, uh, you know, equality on numbers, then we'll talk. Is that a, do you, is, is that saber rattling? Is that, uh, messaging? Um, or is that uh, is that sincere, do you think? Again, we view this buildup through our own ways of thinking and our own prisms. The Chinese have signaled, at least to me, um, that they understand they can't say no forever to nuclear negotiations. They get that. Uh, and the more they build up, the harder it is to say no to negotiations. So one way to look at the buildup, David, and here I'm betraying my age, is preparation for negotiations rather than war fighting strategies. Because in the late Johnson and early Nixon administrations, the Soviet Union was way behind the United States in terms of numbers. And they went on a building spree 
to beat the band. They, they, they carved out so many ICBM silos. They built over 300 a year. And even in the last year of the strategic arms limitation talks, when they had tapered down, they still built 80 new missile silos. And we had already built out our force structure earlier in the Johnson administration. And we were looking at other ways to increase our number and our strength. But they were way behind and they were building. And one of the reasons I believe they built, David, uh, was because when negotiations came, they weren't going to be disadvantaged. And they built the things that they could do best, which was these big bruisers, these huge missiles. They could carry lots of warheads once they mastered that art. And it was very disturbing. And people read into that nuclear war winning capability. But it was done from a position, in my view, initially, it was done from a position of weakness. I see some of that with China, David. Uh, There will be trilateral negotiations. They're coming quicker than I had hoped they would have to come. But the speed of the Chinese modernization program, I don't think leaves us a whole lot of choice, even though the more we talk about negotiations, the more they're going to build. So we're kind of in a catch-22 here. Michael, in in your book, you emphasize the importance of having domestic settings conducive to fostering international cooperation in nuclear arms control. We've we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, Have you seen this sentiment ring true in recent years? Oh, David, some of the greatest achievements in this field were by Republican administrations. Uh, The second Reagan administration, the first Reagan administration was a great adventure that I write about in the book. But the second Reagan administration, Reagan and Gorbachev broke the back of the nuclear arms race and set up George H.W. Bush to succeed mightily. I mean, George H.W. Bush accomplished more in four years than anybody. Richard Nixon set the table, not with the first strategic arms limitation agreement, which was as porous as sandstone and which caused all kinds of headaches later on. But he set the table with a treaty that acknowledged reality and banned nationwide missile defenses. So one of the conditions was in place because of Nixon that other Republican presidents later on could build upon deep cuts. That's what George H.W. Bush did, among other things. Democratic presidents contributed mightily, but it was a rocky road, but it was bipartisan for the most part. And we've lost that. Um, and we, it's so hard to succeed when it's not bipartisan. And arms control has become dirty words for many in the Republican Party. Aspirants for the Republican presidency compete with themselves to tear down agreements, including ones that are in our benefit. Well, I, I, you know, I was I, on that point um, since you since you led me into another question. I was hoping to to ask of you. You know, how big of an impact was the Trump administration's withdrawal from numerous nuclear agreements? Trump set the record for withdrawals. He withdrew from four. George W. Bush withdrew from two. And they were both painful um, as history would play out. The, he withdrew from the ABM treaty. And we, David, you may not agree with me on this, but the technology of offense continues to lap the technology for defense, for national missile defenses. It just does. We're no closer than we were when we had the ABM treaty. He walked away from that. George W. Bush also walked away from an agreement 
reached at the end of the Clinton administration, uh, where North Korea stopped producing highly enriched uranium and stopped flight testing the ballistic missiles we worry about. Two withdrawals that came back to haunt. One of Trump's withdrawals, in my view, was utterly warranted and had to happen. The Russian leadership under Vladimir Putin violated the treaty that Reagan and Gorbachev signed that broke the back of the nuclear arms race. Putin didn't violate it in a peripheral way. He violated it in a central way. And there were reasons for that, which we can go into. But I I think we had to withdraw from that treaty. And then there were withdrawals that have come back to bite, like the Iran nuclear agreement. That was predictable. He withdrew from the arms trade treaty at a national convention of the National Rifle Association. And that treaty embodied our own export controls, which we wish to apply to others. And the Open Skies Treaty, a favorite of mine. I'm pretty peculiar about this treaty. I thought it was a great idea when George H.W. Bush proposed it. 1,500 overflights from Vancouver to Vladivostok using commercially available sensors, unclassified technology. Yeah, we could do better. Um, but this was an alliance building enterprise. And it was a friendship building enterprise because we could do ride sharing and, and Putin violated that on the periphery. He did some things, and we can then go into them if you like. But that treaty was in our interest. It was in the interest of helping friends and allies who felt particularly threatened by Russia. I think that was very unwise. Well, yeah, I, I would like to go into uh, more detail. You know, I think we are getting a little short on time, so I, I actually wanted to slightly pivot, although um, you know, it's certainly a uh, the backdrop is a discussion in your book, but you know, my previous role uh, oversaw the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, you know, better known as the Nunn-Luger Act. And the you know, original purpose, obviously, of CTR was uh, you know, to secure and dismantle weapons of mass destruction you know, and their associated infrastructure you know, in the former Soviet Union states. Um, you know, I, over the years, the program's exp- expanded you know, beyond you know, original focus in areas you know, such as biological threat reduction. Uh, which I support from a threat reduction perspective. Yeah, I'd be interested, uh, you know, in in how you view the CTR program then and now, you know, briefly and uh, just just a little bit. Look, I have a personal bias that I ought to declare because I worked with one of our national laboratory laboratories as a consultant on CTR programming. I I think Nunlugar was one of the most glorious chapters of arms control. And I loved how our laboratories and laboratories in the former Soviet Union collaborated. Now, the lines of communication that enabled this collaboration, we didn't have to start from scratch when the Warsaw Pact and then the Soviet Union dissolved. We didn't have to start from scratch because of arms control. And some people listening to this may remember that in the Reagan administration, the nuclear labs, ours and the Soviets, got together on joint verification projects uh, because there were compliance questions about the yields of Soviet tests. And we really didn't have a good handle of the geology of Soviet test sites. And that had a bearing on our estimated yields. And the labs really worked together on that, which was a 
critical precursor to lab-to-lab work um, with Nun Lugar. And when you think about this, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was drowning in a sea of 35,000 warheads and enough fissile material to make maybe twice that number. And it was going through a Great Depression. Our Great Depression, our economy contracted 30% in the United States. The Russians' Great Depression, their economy contracted 40%. So how in the world did we get through this passage without loose nukes and without dirty bombs? It wasn't by deterrence. (laughs) Deterrence didn't make that happen. Cooperative threat reduction made it happen. Arms control made it happen. And this work remains central. And I'm so glad it has expanded far and wide. Um, but this was this was a major accomplishment of arms control that we tend to lose sight of. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Well, let, let me end on you know, sort of a big picture question, kind of how I began with, you know, on, on what's the big message. But, you know, maybe what's the main takeaway uh, that individual listeners and readers, which I know there'll be a lot of, um, should take away about nuclear arms control from your book? Well, I want to end on a hopeful note, Dave, because we're feeling now as a country a lot like we felt after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And writing this book allowed me to go back in time to that period. It's hard to understand just how world-shaking it was to learn of this new weapon for which there was no defense and a weapon that seemed perfectly suited to surprise attack, a weapon that we had a temporary advantage on, a head start on. But Stalin had his spies. Stalin was a megalomaniac. He was a mass murderer and he was going to get this bomb. And he was going to get the means to deliver it, to attack us. And later, Mao was too. And Mara, Mao had eat probably as much blood on his hands, maybe more, than Stalin did. People were deeply shaken by nuclear weapons. They felt great waves of anxiety. And, and things were happening. Technology was moving so fast that the situation seemed to be getting worse and worse and worse. And there was a time, David, for our parents when a nuclear weapon was being tested every two weeks on average in their lifetimes. And over 400 of these tests were carried out in the atmosphere. People felt deeply pessimistic and they felt helpless to do anything about this. David, here we are three quarters of a century later. Not one of these weapons has been used in warfare. The last atmospheric test of a nuclear weapon was in 1980. It was by China. All major powers and all regional powers have stopped testing at yield. And they're still experimenting. And there are arguments about the experimentation. But major and regional powers haven't tested in over two decades. How did this happen? It was utterly unexpected. It happened because good people worked the problem. They worked it every day. And they work to complement deterrence with measures of reassurance that we call arms control. And previous generations succeeded despite the odds. And we can too. We can do this. Well, thank you. Uh, really wonderful to, to, to speak with you and uh, to get uh, 
you know, your, your, your wealth of knowledge, at least for uh, a few minutes of it. I'm sure uh, we could have gone on forever. Uh, but again, we, we thank you and, and wish you the best of luck on, let me just give the title again, please, for, for our listeners um, and viewers, because uh, I know many will, 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 will go out to get it, but it's Winning and Losing the Nuclear Peace, The Rise, Demise, and Revival of Arms Control by Michael Crapon. So thank you, Michael, once again, um, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. David, thank you. Much appreciated. Absolutely. That's a wrap. Uh, as always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason NAT. SEC. That's at Mason Natsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Riley Boyd for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.